Father, we pray as we enter into Your Word tonight, we come humbly seeking and asking for Your Word to be poured over our hearts and into our minds. We come praying for a work of Your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. Lord, at every age represented here in the barn tonight, I pray for understanding. I pray for wide eyes, alertness and awareness to the things that You have to teach us. And may we hear You by Your Word in Jesus' name. And by Your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll pick up right at verse 13. If you weren't here Sunday, we talked about the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 10. Jesus teaching about marriage and divorce and God's definition of marriage, which is absolutely clear. It's not up for debate. It is not up for election. It is not up for man's decision. It is what it is. And we can call marriage whatever we want. But God already defined it for us very clearly. And so that's what we talked about on Sunday. If you missed that, I encourage you to pick it up. You know, I was talking with someone this week about the whole idea of... I knew Sunday morning when I was talking about marriage and the definition of marriage that 99.99% of everyone in the barn probably agreed. I mean, sure, there was a .001% who may, maybe didn't agree. But I knew, you know, it's not... People said that was a courageous sermon. And I said, no, it wasn't. It was easy. It would be courageous if I went downtown Seattle and preached that sermon. (laughs) But here's the reality. The reason why we continue to stand up and preach, even things that perhaps you would agree with, and I agree with as we go through God's Word, is He is equipping us to be speakers of truth wherever we are. And if we can at least, you know, if not in the church, where are we going to speak truth? And if truth is not spoken in the church, then when we're not gathered together, we're going to have a much harder time speaking truth. So, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, as we go through the Word and as we study together, that you take this personally, that you become equipped with the Word so that you will know how to give an answer in season. And you will be able to respond and tell people, explain to them why it is you have this hope within you. So we will continue just to teach what the Bible teaches. And we're going to do that tonight, beginning in verse 13, right after Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce and adultery. Verse 13, And they were bringing children to Him so that He might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When they saw this, when Jesus saw this, He was indignant and He said to them, Permit the children to come to Me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and he began blessing them and laying his hands on them. And Mark places this little vignette immediately after Jesus' teaching on marriage. See the connection? I mean, think about this. One commentator notes this incident follows with singular fitness after the Lord's assertion of the sanctity of married life. He goes directly from the teaching about marriage and divorce and adultery to deal with this picture of children coming to Jesus. So what? So it's well placed. This vignette of the children. Because children are the fruit of the one flesh union. 
It's what we talked about on Sunday. The paradox of marriage is one plus one equals one. The two become one flesh. And the ultimate proof of that is the child produced by that one flesh union. And every one of us are here tonight. Because at some point, a man and a woman came together and the two became one flesh. And you are proof of that. I'm not going to go back all into the definition of marriage. But listen, where that union is divided, the child is often the one who is overlooked. As we slip into that place of hardness of heart, the kids are either left out of the equation or sometimes used as ammunition in the equation. And as we've seen in the culture of the first century, children were the lowest class of society. Children were the non-people. It was adulthood that everyone aspired to, not childhood. Jesus flips it upside down. Jesus says, no, children are not the lowest class of society. As a matter of fact, in the kingdom of God, children are the model citizens. You want to know what a citizen of the kingdom looks like? And he grabs a child. Right here. This is what citizens of my kingdom are like. They are like a child. Now don't overthink this, because a lot of people have. It is not because children are innocent. Ha! Children are great connivers. They are manipulators. They're little stinkers. They are not innocent. And it's not because children are selfless. Quite the opposite, you all know. Children from birth forward are very selfish. An infant is one of the most selfish little creatures on the planet. (laughs) I'm hungry. Wah! I need to go to the bathroom. Wah! I can't sleep. Wah! You bother me. Wah! That's all they do. What does it mean to be like a child? And if you, if you start reading through commentaries on this section of Scripture, it's absolutely amazing what people come up with. Well, to be like a child means, and off they go, overthinking. What does it mean to be like a child? My answer is simple. To be like a child. What does that mean? Okay, receiving the kingdom like a child simply means simply receiving the kingdom. Receiving the kingdom with simple faith. It's not about the characteristics of a child or, or that ch- children are this way or that way. It's that kids believe you. They believe anything you tell them. Which can be a lot of fun if you're kind of twisted. <laughs> and Cheryl's always reminding me of the verse, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Okay, I get that, I get that. <laughs> children receive things simply. What a perfect picture of simple trust. Come on, kids, get in the car, we're going. How often do they ask where? Not my kids, they just get in the car and off we go. And they're looking out the window and picking their noses and talking to each other. They don't care where we're going. They just know Dad is driving. And they trust that I'm taking them somewhere and I will get them back home. Simple. Simple faith. I love Psalm 131 because David describes this in in just beautiful detail. It's a short little psalm, three verses. We'll just look at two of them. Psalm 131, verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. I don't overthink it, David says. 
Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Remember, the soul is your mind. The seat of your reason, the thinking, the intellect. And David says, I've quieted that. It's that noisy brain in many people that keeps them from a simple faith. And he says, I've quieted my soul. Like a, a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. And that's important. Not like a newborn. I'm hungry! No. Like a weaned child who's at rest. A weaned child who is beyond that place of need. And David says, my soul is quieted. He expresses a simple, uncluttered faith. I'm just going to trust you, Lord. You know, that kind of faith is the most wonderful faith you can have. It's not blind faith. It's simple faith. It's knowing God's going to do what God's going to do. And I was wrapped around the axle for three hours last night straight. I took Cheryl down to... The, down to Seattle. She flew out to a women's ministry conference this morning. And so I'm driving home from SeaTac by myself in the traffic. So there's your three hours right there. <laughs> Listening to the election results and getting more and more and more upset. And I got home and walked in the door and <laughs> I didn't even say anything. Hayden just looked at me and goes, What's wrong with you? <laughs> And I think the second thing he said was, did I do something? <laughs> I was just I was just bugged by everything I was hearing. And I woke up this morning like a weaned child with a quieted soul and I remembered my father knows where we're going and my father knows how to get me home. And that's all I need to know. By the way, parents, the best place to instill a childlike faith is in the heart of a child. Take it from me. Instilling childlike faith in adults is difficult. I see that in my own life. It's always harder to bring someone to faith in Jesus when they're an adult because they've got to know all the answers. They're overthinking everything. They're analyzing it. They're working it through the brain instead of receiving it in the spirit. A child, a child, you just say, Jesus is Lord. Okay. Sounds good. God created the world. I'm with you, Dad. It's not until they get older that they start to mess with that. Parents, it is so, so, so important to get your kids here. Charles Spurgeon, recalling his own mother's faith and his own mother's passion for his faith, wrote the following. Some of the words of a mother's prayer we shall never forget, even when our hair is gray. I remember on one occasion, my mother praying like this, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. You wonder why Charles Spurgeon had such a great faith and why he was such an amazing Bible orator. He had a mother who was praying that way. And he said, that thought of my mother's bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart. (laughs) Absolutely. Parents of little ones, like these parents, bring them to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus early on. Grandparents, get the grandkids. If mom and dad are being stupid, get the grandkids and bring them to Jesus. 
And parents of teenagers, can I just say to you all, keep bringing them. I don't want to go to church. I don't care. You live under my house, you live under my rules. Get your fanny in the car. You know, and I've had these conversations with parents. Well, I don't know if I should bring them. Or I'm not sure. You know, I don't want to impede their will. Impede, please! Violate their will! You're doing other things. Dad, I don't really want to go to school. Okay, that's cool. You don't do that. Get them here. And by the way, I just, I'm going to say this again on Sunday morning, but parents of teenagers, once you get them here, get them in here. Well, they're wandering out around outside, but maybe they're getting the word by osmosis or something. It's floating out in the wind. And, and I know, I know, I've heard it. I know there are teenagers who say, I don't get half of what Pastor Rick says. Just flying over my head. Yeah, but they're getting half. If they're getting a quarter, I'm good with that. If they get one teaching out of four, far out. Excellent. Bring them, get them in here. And by the way, you can use that living under my roof principle. That's a good one. I like that one. My kids have heard it many times. My roof, my rules. Bring the kids to Jesus. Continuing on in this spirit-inspired narrative, and I really believe there's, there's such an amazing flow through these couple of chapters as we go from teaching about marriage to now bringing the children to Jesus, which is what a strong marriage is designed to do. Bring the kids. Well, now we come to a young man who had the faith of an adult, not a child. A young man whose desire was to receive the kingdom, but on his own terms. Verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's one of my favorite responses of Jesus because in that statement, He insinuates His own self. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. And by the way, you should call me good because God is good and I am God. That's the implication here. A wonderful implication. You remember what the Lord told Moses? Moses said, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. Which is a very human thing to ask. I want to see the glory of God. And God responds saying, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Exodus 33.19 First of all, Moses, if I showed you my glory, you'd, you'd fry. You'd be gone. But I'll show you my goodness. I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Why do you call me good? Only God is good, Jesus says. In verse 19, Jesus goes on, You know the commandments... Remember, the question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, and that word looking means intently looking at him. He looked into his heart. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. 
But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And it is one of the most tragic stories in the Bible. Luke tells us in chapter 18, verse 23, that this young man was not just a landholder, not just slightly wealthy. Luke says he was extremely rich. An extremely rich young man. And so Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. He doesn't dance around the issue. He goes straight to this man's heart. And Jesus quotes what's called the second table. That is the the last five of the Ten Commandments. That's the quote you see there in verse 19. It's Exodus chapter 20, verses 12 through 16. So you can go back and do the comparison. But he leaves one thing out. Of those last five, he leaves out, do not covet. Now, some think that's because covetousness was the man's problem. I don't think so. In fact, I think the opposite. I think he left out, do not covet, because it wasn't an issue. I think he repeated the commandments that perhaps were an issue. I don't know about murder and adultery so much, but do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Note this, do not defraud is not technically in the last five of the Ten Commandments. I think what Jesus is doing here is He's taking do not steal and do not bear false witness and He's putting them together to say do not defraud, which was probably the man's issue. I'm reading it a bit, so you need to do your own thinking on this. Do not defraud. He underscores do not steal and do not bear false witness, both which are part of defrauding. But notice what He then follows do not defraud with. Honor your father and mother. Is it possible this rich young man was defrauding his parents? Whatever the case may be, Jesus goes straight to the heart of the problem. So you see, so far now we've already gone from teaching on marriage to children to a wealthy young man who Jesus says, honor your father and mother. This whole family thing that we are all so dysfunctional. We wouldn't be so dysfunctional if we did it Jesus' way. We do it our way, and so we mess it up, and we need course correction. That's, I think, so much of what the Word does. It brings us that course correction. Verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to His disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at His words. And Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Why were they amazed? Because this was not the prevailing teaching of the day. The rabbinical teaching of the day was riches equals righteousness. If you are wealthy, it's because you're a good person. If you've got lots of riches, it's because you're a righteous person. The same mentality had been going on since the days of Job. Job's friends were sure that Job had sinned because he had lost everything. And they were sure before that he was righteous because he had everything. And they equated, the rabbis did, equated righteousness with riches, riches with righteousness. Prosperity Gospel 101. It was going on all the way back then. It still goes on today. God will bless you if you're a righteous person. And that's just not how it works. Paul writing to Timothy says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 9, those who want to get rich 
fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, you all heard this, is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so note, Jesus says two things. He says, how hard will it, hard will it be for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And then he says, hey, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? For anybody, entrance into the kingdom is a near impossibility. No matter who you are. This is tough stuff. And then he uses this now famous one verse parable. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What does that really mean? Bible teachers are divided on this one. You know, just like the apostles, they keep asking, what does that mean? And I keep reading it and saying, it means what he said it means. Why do we have to change the meaning? Some think that Jesus here refers to the needle gate. It's easier for a camel, or a real camel. Camels were the largest animals in the Middle East at the time. And a real camel, it's easier for a real camel to go uh, through the eye of the needle gate than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom. What's the needle gate? The needle gate is a small after-hours door that is set in the main gate of a city. So if you can imagine that, the main gate would be open during the day. Caravans could come in and out and trade could happen. But in the night, they closed the main gate. They still had the doorway that you could enter. A caravan couldn't. You know, an army couldn't, but a, an individual could. And some have taken that and, and they've made this interesting picture that a camel, if unpacked and kneeling down, could possibly go through that door. Be difficult. But it could happen. And some have taught that. It's a picture of unpacking your wealth and kneeling before the Lord. Well, that's kind of an interesting picture. I like that. That'll preach. Some say that's what it means. Others point out that the Greek word for camel closely resembles the Greek word for cable. And so it's a picture of an actual needle, but now you're trying to jam a cable through it. And you can't get it through there. Maybe if the cable begins to fray and come apart, you can start getting bits of it through the eye of the needle. Which one is it? Let me ask you a simple question. If you tell this verse to a child, what will they see? They will see a camel, full size, trying to go through a needle. That's what they'll see. Simple faith. Faith of a child. Read the scriptures that way, and for one thing, you get the humor. Because that's a pretty funny picture. You know, that's something you you might see on a cartoon or something. The squeezing of a camel through a needle's eye. Squishing a camel through there. And that's, I think, exactly what Jesus is saying. It's just, it is what it is. You know, quiet your soul, don't overthink this stuff, because if we do, not only do we miss Jesus' humor, but we miss the point that he's making, and that is, it's impossible. This is something you can't do. For whatever effort, I can unpack and humble myself before the Lord and that's how I get into the kingdom. No, it's not. Well, if I work really hard at getting that cable through, if I just if I work really hard at squeezing myself into the will of God, keeping all the law, that's how I'll get into the kingdom. No, it's not. Either case, it's impossible. You can't do it. It is not based on your effort or your merit any more than it was for the rich young ruler. 
verse 26, Jesus went on and explains this. He says, it says they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus says, with people it's impossible. That's the point of the parable. It's impossible. It is not something that is doable in any way. But, not with God. For all things are possible with God. Check it out. Even your salvation. No offense. Even mine. That still stuns me sometimes. Especially when I've done something really stupid. And I look at myself and say, God even can save me. Wow. The context of the story contrasts the simple faith of a child that we just looked at with this adult faith of the rich young man. Remember, this is not just chronologically laid out here. It is also thematically laid out that we might understand the will of God. And so we go from the simple faith of children brought to Jesus. He welcomes that kind of faith. He says, this is what citizens of the kingdom look like. And then we go to the very next story of this rich young guy who is not thinking with the faith of a child. And think about it this way. What kind of material wealth does a child rely on or worry about? My kids are thrilled beyond measure if you give them a nickel. I haven't told them how little a nickel is worth these days. They just think it's really cool. In fact, they would rather have a nickel than a dime because a nickel's bigger. They'd rather have four quarters than a dollar or, or than a ten dollar bill because four quarters jingle and they're shiny. They, they, it just doesn't... It doesn't bug them. The older we get, the more complex our lives get. You all know this. The more we have, the more we have to worry about. The more stuff we own, the more our stuff owns us. Faith of a child. A simple childlike faith knows that with God all things are possible. With God salvation is possible, even mine. Jeremiah 32.17, the prophet says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And there are scientists, brilliant men and women on the planet today who would say that's just childish. That's childlike foolishness to say that God created by his power and his outstretched arm. Ah, Lord God, Jeremiah says, nothing is too difficult for you. Faith of a child. Jeremiah 32, verse 27 The Lord responds, Behold, I am the Lord God, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Paul put it this way, Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Is it possible for a man to be saved? Absolute no. It's impossible. God makes it possible. Is it possible for a rich man to be saved? No. Except that God makes it possible. And by the way, plenty of rich men are mentioned in the Bible who are very saved individuals. Just ask Job. Ask Abraham. Ask Zacchaeus. Ask Joseph of Arimathea. Ask Barnabas. All very wealthy men who came to Jesus with childlike faith. Verse 28. And Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus 
said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now you've got to look at these two verses, verse 29 and 30. And if you do a quick comparison of the two, Jesus turns the list of losses in verse 29 into a list of great gains in verse 30, but saying in verse 30, you'll receive a hundred times as much as what you lose in the previous verse. You give up all this stuff, you're going to receive a hundred times the exact same thing. Cross-training requires denying the self, but gang, the rich rewards of discipleship in Jesus are incomparable. That as you start to walk with and follow Jesus, and you look back at the old life, the things that you gave up, you don't miss them. You don't care. I've got a hundred times better now than what I had then, and then I thought I had it all. But here's something interesting with a couple of these verses. The list he gives... I, I grew up with a mom, and a dad, and a brother and an assortment of dogs who died terrible deaths. Let's not go there now. (laughs) And thankfully in the faith, I still have my mom and my dad and my brother. But over the years, I have not had closeness. I'm talking because of ministry. uh, Because of where the Lord has led Shell and I. He's, He's carried us far from home over the last 25 years, from California to Texas to Washington to Virginia, back to California and and back up to Washington. My parents to this day, they're in Southern California. I don't see them often. And so while I've lost that closeness that I had in my first 17, 18 years of growing up in the house with Mom, Dad, and Ron, what I have gained is remarkable. It's astounding to me. I have known over the years along the way more family than I can count. I have more mothers. I have more sisters, more brothers. I've had more houses. Many I haven't owned, but I've been welcome into them. I've known more children. I've even had farms. Look at where we're meeting tonight. I mean, if that's not proof positive that God blesses in amazing ways. Here we are in a barn. But note this. From verses 29 to verse 30, Jesus subtracts one thing from the first verse, the first list, and He adds two things to the second list. The thing He subtracts off of the first list, He doesn't repeat the word Father. And I find that interesting. I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. He leaves off fathers. Why? Because we have a father. Because when you give up all the rest for the Lord, for his kingdom, there's only one father. In the, you don't have multiple fathers. Which is why... Even at being called Pastor Rick, I recoil a little bit. Because I ain't your father. I'm not your pop. Some of you are going, <laughs> What does Jesus say? Matthew 23, 9. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. That's where the authority lies. Not here. 
He's the Father. And so Jesus leaves Father off the second list. But on the second list, He adds a couple of things. Aside from adding everything a hundredfold greater than the first list, He also adds persecutions and eternal life. So here's something else that you get. Along with a hundred times what you lost, you also get persecution. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, I wonder if the apostles even caught it the first time. Wait, wait, wait. did he say what? Did he say a purse of something? No, persecutions. Because Jesus is still cross-training the disciples. He's reminding them that even in the great gain of following Him, you will still be persecuted. There is still a cross to carry. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Plan on it. Prepare for it. Be ready. If you want to be godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. But He also promises eternal life, which is something we cannot enjoy right now. We can get glimpses of it. We know we're already citizens of the kingdom. We know the kingdom's coming and we have a great hope. But we don't fully understand it because we're limited by, by this flesh. And so when Jesus said in Mark 8.35, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it, he's talking on an eternal scale. Far beyond what you can imagine, eternal life and persecutions are added to this list. But then he says this, and note this, verse 31, but, that's the Greek conjunction de, just D-E. And it's important. But, many who are last will be Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And a lot of people have taken this first, and they rip it out, and they say, here's the standard of the kingdom. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And my parents told me that when I was in kindergarten. Go to the back of the line, because eventually you'll be first. And make sure you're last so that you can be first. Think context. Think context. Jesus is responding to Peter's statement here. So he's going back to what Peter and the twelve are thinking, what they're saying. Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, Yeah, I know. And the benefits are phenomenal. But, Peter, however, many first will be last and the last first. What's the point? Don't rush to the front of the line for the immediate rewards. Don't become a follower of Jesus Christ because you know that there are some good rewards in it. Because if that's your motivation for following Jesus, the rewards that will come, you won't last long enough to enjoy the rewards. Don't let the rewards be the issue. And it is for some people. What are you talking about? People who become Christians because of gifts they hear they can receive. And their whole Christian life becomes about the exercising of those gifts so that everyone else can be impressed with their spirituality. Why should anybody come to Jesus? It is not for the rewards. It is for the reward. Singular. What is the reward? Jesus is. Jesus is the reward. Genesis 15.1 God says, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I'm the reward. We see this picture with the Levites in Israel. Everyone else in Israel got an inheritance. What did the Levites get? Nothing. 
Why? Because their inheritance is the Lord. And he makes that clear. Levites, I'm your reward. I'll give you a city in each one of the different regions of, of the tribes of Israel. But you don't get your own inheritance. You don't get your own land. You get me. That's the reward. Come to Jesus for Jesus. And of course, yes, Jesus says, you're going to receive a hundredfold. You're going to look back and say, wow, that was so nothing compared to what I have in the faith, in the body of Christ now. It's wonderful. But that's still not why I'm following Jesus. I do it for Him. Verse 32. So they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of him of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. We talked about this before, Isaiah 50, verse 7. The third servant song which says, The Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be ashamed. They're amazed and they're fearful because... Jesus is dead set on going into the mouth of the beast. He is headed straight for Jerusalem and the, and the opposition is mounting. And they're just amazed at how determined He is to go die. He keeps talking about this. Again, He takes the twelve aside. He began to tell them what was going to happen to Him. Verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn Him to death. And will hand Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him. And three days later He will rise again. And they are just stunned at what He's saying. And they're a little afraid of His determination to die. This is the third time in Mark's record that Jesus has so clearly laid out what's about to happen. And it's the most explicit time. I mean, he doesn't miss a thing. The scourging, the spitting, the be- I mean, all of it's there. And if you were reading this in the Greek, what some have pointed out is that there's a certain cadence to the comments. There's a rhythm to what Jesus is saying. You might notice... How often in verses 33 and 34 he says the word and. And. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered and they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. This, this, it's like a march. And, and, and. And in between all of these ands are eight future tense verbs connecting together step by bloody step. This is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. It just goes from bad to worse. And every single and leads us through the painful, brutal, excruciating steps of Jesus all the way to the cross. But think about this. How much time do you spend in the ands? In your life, how much time do you spend among these, the march of the ands. Today the car wouldn't start. And the cat scratched me. And my boss was on my back. And the cops pulled me over and gave me a ticket. And down the spiral we go. It's one bad thing after another. And, 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 and. And don't miss this. Because Jesus' march did not end at the cross. He marched right out of the tomb. And three days later, He will rise again. Don't stay in the ends. Get to the end of it. You have a bad day? Hey, so I, we all have bad 
days. Happens all the time. And my resurrection is coming. And I'm going to rise from the dead. Or rise from the life, depending. You know? But I'm going to rise. And no matter what else happens, I'm going home. Keep your eyes on the price, on the, on the end result, not on the ends um, along the way. As we march, we are headed to a destination. Keep your eyes there. The most crucial element of cross-training is the resurrection. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. But what happens after the cross? The resurrection. This is what I believe John meant when he talked about the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance. Revelation 14.12 Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Now that passage is talking about tribulation saints. If you understand that, great. If you don't, go listen to the Revelation study. But here's the deal. The saints of God, followers of Jesus, disciples, are enabled to persevere through all the ands because we march not just to our crosses, we march to our resurrection in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to rise. So don't forget the final and, and don't leave that out of the Gospel story. When you tell people, Jesus died for you because He loves you, and guess what? He rose so that you can rise too. Don't leave that off. Verse 35. Boy, after hearing that, you'd think that would really stir some hearts, and James and John were stirred. The two sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. (laughs) Really? Wow. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Note that's interesting. It's not just about drinking a cup. It's about a full immersion of suffering. It's head to toe. Are you willing to do this? Are you able to do this? And of course, James and John, the sons of thunder, say, We are able! Yes! We are able! And Jesus said, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. James and John, you are going to experience head-to-toe suffering. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now on the one hand, this request seems a bit out of place. Jesus is talking about going to the cross, He's talking about His suffering, He's talking about His resurrection, and they say, hey, do something for us. Let us sit on your right and on your left as you know the, the primary two guys. Yeah, we were with you on the mountain of transfiguration. I know Peter was, but he's such a blowhard. It's got to be one of the two of us, right? <laughs> put me on the right, put him on the left, we'll be good to go. And it just seems like, are you serious you're saying this right now? But, on the other hand, there may have been some faith in James and John. 
They may actually have been speaking out of some faith. They may have been believing, at least to a degree, that Jesus was going to die and was going to rise again glorified, so they figure they better get their bids in right now. You know? (laughs) It's like my wife and my brother's wife going around my parents' house and tagging things, you know, just in case when that day comes. Well, I want the grandfather clock. Well, I want the, the hutch. Well, I, you know, I mean, they've done this. And I just sit there going, you've got to be kidding me. Show my my parents a little respect, you know, as I'm tagging something over here. (laughs) But faith or no faith, wherever James and John are coming from, it is obviously a misguided and self-serving request, and it ticks off the rest of the apostles. Look at verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Of course they were angry. They didn't think of it first. Verse 42. Calling them to Himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Notice he doesn't say it's not to be this way among you. He says it's not this way among you. Right now, currently, apostles, this is not how we function. We don't lord it over one another. We're together in this. You know? But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Note that word. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Note that word. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And so even after saying, unless you become like this little child... Even after saying the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, they're still not getting it. They're still thinking greatness and glory. And so Jesus puts a fine point on it and He says two behavioral words that describe great people in the kingdom of God. Again, He's already given the characteristic of childlikeness. Now He says, here's how you behave. This is what the great do. They are servants. The word servant there in the Greek is diakonos, where we get our word deacon. And it's not a position in the church. It is a role of serving. In fact, diakonos literally refers to one who serves on or waits tables. That's a diakonos. Not someone who holds meetings to decide you know, what color the Jones Memorial carpet's going to be. It's a servant who waits tables. Diakonos. The word slave, doulos. Doulos... Comes from, and this is interesting to me, it comes from the root word depo in the Greek, which means to bind or be bound. The slave is bound to their task. They are slaves of their task. And actually, deo, this idea of binding, speaks of binding up a dead body in a linen cloth. The slave who is bound. So, rather than getting wrapped around the axle for greatness, Jesus says, be bound like a slave. Be bound like a slave of righteousness to Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And so Jesus describes the greatest servants in the kingdom, servants and slaves. 
And if you want to be great in the kingdom, that's what you aspire to right now in this world. That's our purpose. As a fellowship of believers and in this world, our purpose is to be slaves and servants. So let's outdo one another in being slaves and servants.